Well, hello there, nifty listeners, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place in space to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and welcome to episode 44. Before we jump into today's discussion, let's go over some quick housekeeping. First off, we are ACE approved, so if you're listening for continuing education units, jot down the two keywords interspersed during the talk, and then take those over to our website, atypicalba.com, where you can purchase CEUs. And take a little bit to cruise around the site to find additional resources for each episode and more information about our amazing, amazing guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with upcoming talks and live events, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our live events are a great time to hang out and learn and interact directly with our guests, and our social media is a great way to get to know the podcast, so reach out and say hi. You can also rate and provide feedback on your favorite listening platform to help further our dissemination mission. And lastly, stick around after the talk to hear a preview clip from episode 45. And now, about today's discussion. Oh man, this episode is so cool. We're talking layers of reinforcement, we're talking animal training, and we're talking about zoo animals learning to consent to receive necessary medical treatment. Oh, and we're going to talk gold diamond and the importance of stories and listening, unpacking the organism and learner, and how behavior analysis can improve the quality of life across these learners. In this live chat with Lisa Clifton Bumpus, animal trainer, expert, consultant, supervisor, and so much more, she'll relay her story of working with animals and humans and discuss how working with animals has shifted and changed throughout the years. These stories and histories provide lessons for others to further explore, and that curiosity is important when it comes to understanding the learner, be they fur-legged, scaly, or feathered, and then building interventions and programs through the constructional approach to better serve those animals and organisms. Behavioral science is unique in the fact that it can be applied to multiple layers, systems, responses, learners, even if they may look a little alien. So curiosity and creativity help expand the science, lead to improved adaptation and flexibility within various situations, and further growth for both the practitioner and the learner. So grab a dog, a cat, a parrot, or some other snuggly stimulus, and tune into episode 44, Curiosity, Creativity, the Constructional Approach, and Critters with Lisa Clifton Bumpus. There we go. One of these days, I'll figure out how to change her voice because um, she irritates me. But um, this, <laughs> it just, I don't know. She just sounds obnoxious to me. Um, it's fine. But yeah, welcome. So happy Wednesday, everyone. Um, I'm Kelly. I'm with the Atypical Behavior Analyst. And I am here with Lisa Clifton Bumpus, who um, I, I couldn't even sum up all of the cool things that you've done in your titles and everything. So um, I'm just gonna let you tell about yourself. But, you know, today we're going to be talking animals and the constructional approach. Um, if you've caught any of our previous episodes or lives, um, we've kind of had these embedded themes throughout that are kind of general uh, generating like scientist practitioner model and especially the constructional approach because I absolutely love Gold Diamond. Um, I am thankful that I got to have that introduction to him and his um, approach early on and so it's kind of been nicely embedded in my practice and then it made me sad when I got into the rest of the world and realized not everybody thought like that um, or had his stuff so if you're ever interested in Gold Diamond stuff please reach out to me. I have a whole zip drive on him. Um, I think I downloaded every single article I could find because someone gave me an EBSCO host login and I made use of it. <laughs> but yeah, and so we're going to talk constructional approach, we're going to talk animals and creativity, and um, Lisa was just kind of giving some, you know, little background information about some of the projects that she's worked on, and yeah, the the resources that I think we're going to be able to provide some people with this is going to be really cool too, so um, yeah, let's let's dive in. So welcome, Lisa. Hi, thanks for hanging out with me Hi. again. 
So um, if you could just start off and kind of give us, you know, your basic background, you know, what got you into animal training, um, how you've kind of seen your career evolve and change over time, um, and some of the the cool things that you've done, and then we'll we'll dive in. Okay. Um, so I came into uh, any form of applied, what I call the applied, applied side of behavior analysis, which are the people that read and go to conferences and really work hard to understand and practice without getting a degree or being in a, or being in a, a degree track program. And um, I got there through um, a very serious uh, series of injuries when I was a street cop. Uh, and uh, they eventually had me um, with some brain damage, uh, nerve damage in my arms and in my legs, and I essentially became um, a shut-in. And all of the doctors, MDs, and PhDs that were trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, um, because it was a fight for my life that left me with uh, PTSD as well as these um, health issues, um, decided that I should uh, start getting outside because I had become afraid to even step out the front door of my home. And I had two Rottweilers and the, everybody agreed that the dogs would give me a sense of security. And uh, this was in the 80s and um, 1980s, excuse me. And um, the dogs were so large and powerful, I had trouble managing them because it was of my injuries. So I started looking for ways to train and it was at the nascent part of the reinforcement uh, training world in animals, particularly dogs. And I was very, very lucky uh, at that stage to have friends that were at the highest level. So I was introduced to people like uh, Dr. Rosales Ruiz, uh, Kelly Simpson Snyder, um, Dr. Bob Bailey, uh, Ken Ramirez, who's a phenomenal animal trainer um, and someone very well worth uh, seeing and, and observing at a really early stage. And that was the gateway for me to start getting better. And I was so good at what I was doing, I had people um, suggesting that I should look at, at it as a professional second career when I got out of law enforcement because I couldn't go back um, because of the hand damage to my hands. Um, so I got involved with that and um, in very short order burned out because I was working um, hard behavior cases. Um, the What used to be labeled as idiopathic aggression um, <clears throat> and, um, it was long before they even had any understanding that aggression is a learned process, um, and response to the environment. So I looked for a place where I could hide and be around animals and, uh, just kind of function quietly. And I became a volunteer at the Oakland Zoo here in, in the Bay Area of Northern California and was assigned to work with the fruit bats, um, and, otters, American River otters and barnyard animals. So I was uh, in my job was required to clean and feed the fruit bats, which is a colony of 40 animals and you're sharing space with them. The way I describe fruit bats from my perspective for other people is they were like normal sized toy chihuahuas hanging from the ceiling. Um, and as an example, for those of you who, um, know about dog facial expressions, they have very expressive faces and fruit bats use their facial expressions as a social communication uh, tool, very much the same way as dogs. So it was, everything was clicking for me. 
And my keeper gave me a, a series of tasks to do, one of which was to uh, go out through a specific door, the only door that led from the night house where the bats slept at night to the, their yard, their uh, fenced in and tented in yard. Um, but there was an, an aggressive, aggressive fruit bat named Beethoven um, hanging right in front of the door. And Beethoven had learned uh, very successfully from his keeper staff that if he showed signs of aggression, um, that they would leave, they wouldn't disturb him. And if people were under the orders of not disturbing Beethoven or upsetting him. But my job was I had to go through the door and Beethoven was about a foot uh, away from the way the door would open so that I couldn't open the door even enough for me to slide through. And I had been to see um, a, a, the very first seminar on constructionalism and animal training, the constructional approach for aggression uh, by Dr. Rosales Ruiz and um, Kelly Sisson Snyder, who uh, ended up getting her master's degree from the work that they did with uh, the constructional approach to aggression. And um, I thought, okay, they've given me this information. It looks really good. Let me just play with using distance as a form to shape the fruit bat's uh, behavior. So the fruit bat wanted me to go away and I needed to get past him to get out the door. And um, what I did was use approach and release, which is I would lean forward and find the very edge of Beethoven's agonistic expressions, and then I would back off and lean forward and back off. So I created the dialogue of reinforcement that he could control my behavior when he started to move. And in very short order, I shaped Beethoven um, through uh, a series of consecutive steps to crawl away from the door to another area just by lean using the, my distance. I never crowded him. I never threatened him. I was standing with my arms by my side, just using very tiny shifts in my body language like this as a reinforcer um, to negatively reinforce his moving away from the door. Unbeknownst to me, my keeper um, was standing behind me in another part of the building watching me. And he had never seen any animal training without some sort of discriminative stimulus marker signal and with ever, without ever any food being given to the learner because that's the way most zoos uh, at that time were using for reinforcers. And he said, I saw what you did. You didn't have my permission, shame on you, but I want you to teach me how to do it. And um, he pulled together a group of people, and this was my very first opportunity to start. Um, I already had a, back, a strong background in teaching people animal training. I was on several boards of directors where we were actually shaping um, measurements for training methodology and knowledge. And I, I said, yeah, sure, I'll help you teach these, these people. And really quickly, what I learned was that they had a very... Uh, tiny uh, experience in what animal training and reinforcement strategies were, or even drawing up training plans and uh, shaping behavior. Um, and uh, that's when I developed my very first constructional team, uh, where I did constructional uh, coaching for a bunch of people who were training individual animals. Um, from there, 
another keeper heard that I had done this because uh, the keeper, my supervisor, started telling everybody about this miracle thing that I was doing just by tiny movements of my body. Um, and it probably looked somewhat similar to the dog whisperer uh, kind of stuff because that's when the Cesar Milan movement was just beginning to gain momentum and people didn't understand what he was using. So it looked magical. Um, so I went through and I started training all these different kinds of animals. And then the giraffe keeper, whose name is Amy Phelps, and she's now the vice president of, of animal welfare and management at the San Francisco Zoo, was a keeper in charge of giraffe. And uh, they had a couple of problem giraffe um, with behaviors that made it uncomfortable for keepers to share space with them on the feeding platform. Uh, and one example would be they had one giraffe who um, would grab either their, their radio that's on their waist, on their two belt, or would, these were women, grab at the ponytails and buns that they had at the back of their head. And giraffe are very strong uh, and, it, and it can hurt and it was a risk. And what they had been told is the best way to manage this behavior was to distract by, as soon as they bit, giving them food. So they didn't understand that they were actually making what their problem was stronger and more resilient. And um, Amy watched me from a distance manage um, this giraffe whose name is Balthazar. Um, and he's passed due to old age, but to, she watched me from a distance watching someone who ne knew nothing about giraffe go up, observe, make some decisions and start training him so that he was backing away from people and head lowering. Again, she had never seen that kind of uh, training skill sets and asked me to join her team. And that was the beginning of my formal work um, and development uh, in the zoo as a coach and um, constructional design and approach person. Um, we, uh, with Amy, we started training giraffe uh, to do things that were never even ever thought that they could do. Um, because again, in the late eighties and before that, it was believed that because giraffe are 16 to 20 feet tall, that the neuron information from their feet took too long to get to the brain and it took too long for the brain to process the information and then to send the impulses back down to lift a leg. And um, yeah, I'm the kind of person that when someone says something like that, I obviously have to go and start watching, observing, doing analysis and taking data. And I found really quickly was that the people who were responsible for training these animals through no fault of their own, had been given the barest minimum understanding of training. And we started building these teams out. Um, and within a couple of years had things like um, ger geriatric giraffe um, being able to stand in ice buckets for their arthritis in their feet, wearing a blanket when it was really cold so they wouldn't shiver, a horse blanket, a custom-made horse blanket, um, we had uh, scientists really curious about brain function. So we had um, brain scans and we trained giraffe for brain scans. Um, and uh, the door just opened up and Amy and I started training lots of different things and moving around. Since then, uh, my species list is probably close to about 150 animals um, and, and, and lots of different kinds of things that we've trained.
Um, and now I'm trying to do even more with creating more uh, constructional coach coaches in the zoo world. And I've got a couple. So we're building, we're building now. That's it in the thumbnail. That's how I got into animal training. Holy shnikes, that's so cool. Um, yeah, watching and listening to the constructional talks and everything, and you know, I love zoos. Um, I that was always my birthday growing up. Um, and so, but I didn't realize how much went on behind the scenes. And so, as I've gotten to learn people that have been keepers or trainers or fellow grad students that had internships here at like the Fort Worth Zoo or the Dallas Zoo, like it's 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 so much more than just hey look at the pretty animal isn't this nice like there is the the welfare of them um the conservation of the species um you know but also making sure that these animals are healthy and they're happy um and happy isn't just this you know emotion that we put on and we like oh well they look happy you know whatever they're eating so that's nice but you know you know what would it look like in the wild and then trying to find those things but then there's the whole like the medical side of things because these are animals and they're not in their normal environments where they'd be building up natural immunity and I'm kind of pulling some information you know but those kind of things and so yeah we do need to you know have medical procedures a giraffe getting arthritis oh my gosh that's like that's mind-blowing to me and 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 the applications are phenomenal because here's an example animals the animals in in all of our homes, whether or in zoos or in aquaria, are living longer lives because we're getting better at flexing the sciences that impact their welfare, um, whether it's diet or enrichment or social group, appropriate social group collections or you name it. And um, one of the, the um, I don't want to lose track of what I was saying. One of the really cool things is that as the sciences have revealed themselves or or have evolved, um, people are looking to do more with their animals so that uh, it's no longer just be able to um, uh, restrain an animal so that you can clean its feet or for the for a farrier to come in and, and trim their feet or restrain an animal so that they can get an injection or um, eye drops or... Uh, any number of those things is that we're beginning to build plans for the behaviors for these long-lived animals, even the short-lived animals. Um, opossums live between two to four years. They have very, very short lives um, so that they are there's less stress in their lives. So we're building out these plans and designs that say we have this individual that's just come into co collection, whatever age it is, we look at the species, what are the typical diseases that they get as they age? What are all the things the veterinarians um, or the healthcare professionals, professionals might need to do for that species or even for that genetic line? Because there are some species of animals in zoos um, that are so rare that they're kind of have funnel genetics and they can't be returned to the wild. Um, that's off the table as a discussion point. Um, but how do we start training them so that we can give them injections, we can look in their eyes, we can look in their ears, we can put our hands on them to give them ointment or whatever. Um, and now we're down to, okay, this individual may need acupuncture. So how do we start training for acupuncture? And uh, just, I think it was last week, I attended a session um, where I was doing some analysis on a behavior for uh, a rhinoceros that's getting acupuncture. Um, and he's getting acupuncture between his toes. 
um, and at the base of the spine at, at, at the top of the tail. And those are areas that rhinoceroses who are notoriously have horrible vision that you just can't poke. You, they can't see you coming. So there's this whole training process. And we're now looking at when individuals first come into a collection, what do we need to train? What are all the components, very constructional, all those really important key uh, pieces um, that are keystones for everything else? And um, that's essentially what we're now looking at is building these design systems for entire collections or sections of the zoo. I mean, it is like, I'm just sitting here, like I have to keep reminding myself to close my jaw because I'm like, it's just amazing. Um, and yeah, I, I like how you really pointed out, you know, as the science has shifted and we've started realizing um, there's more to unpack, you know, it, it's not as simple as just, oh, well, we're going to move this animal from here to here and it'll be fine. Like, no, it, it's complex and learning histories are a real thing. Um, and then there's the, um, you know, species themselves and what goes along with that because you're I don't want to say you're going to respond differently but you're going to have a different approach based on whether it's a rhino versus giraffe versus cat you know and and size and and things like that so kind of with that like how what have been some of the changes because you've talked a little bit around it that you've seen over time um in your career and everything and you know where do you kind of see the future of zoo sciences, animal sciences going, um, and what, you know, what are some recommendations people can kind of do to promote that as well? Because I, I don't want to, um, you know, feel guilty when I go to the zoo. Like, I want to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, encouraging something that's appropriate and it's healthy and everything. So how have you seen those changes develop over time? First, first answer uh, to that is, always go to accredited zoos. There are lots of wonderful mom and pop roadside zoos, but they are often, uh, or smaller non-accredited zoos, they're often very much involved in doing things from an old standard or old methodology. And the majority of the way animals have been handled in the past is like industrial farming. So it is, you know, you moving large animals, you don't even worry about whether they're frightened or stressed. Um, and you move them from point A to point B using um, stress, stress inducing and uh, so that they're in avoidance stage. Um, and currently what uh, the kinds of people that I like to hang out with, the things we're talking about is how do we start building these, what we wanna see is building these behaviors or the suites, I call them suites of behaviors because they're connected like a series of rooms um, in a way so that the reinforcement history for any one individual is so deep and so strong that the times when we do have to, and the term is called grab them or catch them up, that they still are going to have what is called trust. And I just say that's just the reinforcement history, a good solid reinforcement history. Um, but the kinds of things that I foresaw um, in the zoo world was they would usually uh, dart an anesthesia and let the animal go down on its own and then all rush out to wherever the animal fell to do a uh, very much um, mash style. If you ever watch the television show um, about uh, 
you know, the Korean War, MASH hospitals, where they just rush, do whatever they need to do, run out and then uh, give reversing drugs to the animal. And through training, the kinds of things we're doing now is teaching animals um, how to take injections, whether they're intramuscular, sub-Q, uh, some people are working on IV stuff with animals that are trained very well conditioned and trained so that that whole process is safer for both the animal and the humans that are in care. And so that there's less stress that's in the blood, because if you're doing, if you're needing medical baselines through the data of blood and heart rate and things like that and movement, if an animal has been stressed or is being stressed in taking heart rate or blood pressure or um, you name the medical data that you need to get, uh, it's not gonna be accurate. So we're building more and more plans so that we can ask an animal to move, uh, walk uh, a, a long distance so we can do gait analysis to see if we've got the beginning of arthritis or if we have muscle injuries or other things like that, so that we can get right up as close as you can through protective contact. In most cases, to, to take a bring a specialist in, like uh, an ophthalmologist, who is going to look in the eye and need the animal to, to stand or sit or lie very, very still, so that they can do a complete full exam without it being anesthetized. The world has changed dramatically, uh, and now I what I see happening is that the way what used to be called a happy animal um, or a content animal uh, was measured is completely different because the sciences continue to change. And through our uh, very skilled training um, and planning, you can do all sorts of things with equipment and sounds and smells where the animals are conditioned beforehand, before you have to do um, something invasive or frightening. A perfect example would be um, one of the first giraffe we worked with, her name was Tiki. Uh, she's a grand dame. Uh, uh, Tiki was the one who had the electrodes on her head for the brain studies and wore the blanket. And uh, um, we used to do ice baths for her feet and acupuncture and uh, uh, chiropractic and brought in uh, animal muscle movement specialists to teach us how we could stretch legs on a giraffe for muscle cramping and do massages and stuff like that. So those things are now being planned for in, in a way where you can have uh, unwieldy uh, equipment coming in that makes strange sounds, looks odd and stinks. And the animal is like, hmm, it must be an opportunity for reinforcement. We now know that you know, something new or a new person in the um, environment is not to be afraid of. And uh, it's, uh, it makes me very, very happy. You know, watching giraffe hoof trims on a completely unrestrained animal who's completely relaxed is a joy because they are participating in it. And now we're looking at ascent in animal uh, behavior and training for ascent um, and choice and control for them and what does that look like? Um, and an example would be, we're looking uh, at, and I, I'm not going to say where or what species or the name of the person that's doing it, but we are looking to train some megafauna so that they can request a specific kind of contact. 
they can mand or they can use a signaling button or a, um, an emblem on the on the wall to say massage please or leg stretch please and so we're in the the very beginning levels of um doing that it's very much like the dog videotape you may or may not have seen with the buttons on the ground where the dog asks to go out or the dog asks for food or the dog asks to be scratched and that's kind of what we're looking at and having some very cool beginning success a paper i think will be coming on that so uh that's super rad and also i um i asked um eddie and Erica and Laura in one of our previous chats about the, I was like, I'm not going to call them AAC buttons, but like, that's what my behavior analyst BCBA brain wants to call them because I've used those with my clients before. And so, yeah, yeah I, I, I think there is a lot of, you know, fun stuff that we can play with um, there. Yeah. And yeah, because it is, it's just building. It's, that's why I love the constructional approach so much because it's never looking at there is never a skill. No, there's always something there that we can start with. There's always something, you know, Beethoven was hanging and you just start with that and yeah. slowly working on, you know, shifting positions and everything. And, you know, I, the concept of ascent, I know, is already something difficult that humans have to deal with. Um, and especially dealing with animals, because, yeah, the perception of what animals do think, you know, whatever has drastically shifted in even just the last probably 20 or 30 years from yeah they don't have thoughts they don't have souls you know things like that they can't control themselves there's this you know innate instinct and i think a lot of that is true but you know we can see that they are fully capable of making choices and the choices that they do make make sense when you look yeah. at the contingencies and the the environment that's involved around them if if you are in the house of all behavior is lawful all behavior is purposeful we just don't know what it what it, the purpose is at that time, or we may misinterpret what that means, or we may have stereotype labels for what that kind of stuff have, it means, is that we're missing a huge conversation, if you will, uh, give and take. Um, so uh, Susan Friedman gave a lecture uh, to a bunch of dog trainers. I have no idea when it was, many, 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 many years ago, well over 15 years ago. And she talked about MANS, M-A-N-D-S, MANS. And I thought, hmm, well, the example she's using is the dog who sits at the back door requesting to go outside. And that's a signal for us that that door needs to be open. So it's purposeful for the whatever that mand is, that's a purposeful behavior. So I started thinking about, again, I went back to Tiki after Susan Friedman put this little weed seed in my mind. And um, I thought, well, if she's acting in certain ways, and we start reinforcing certain kinds of behaviors, then they might evolve into a man or a man may pop out or the interconnectivity between one association will trigger something, uh, uh, um, a realization. And again, I don't have the word that you would use in behavior analysis, but would lead to lead a learner to understand that they, there's more going on there and that they can try things and that we will respond. And my favorite manned um, uh, story is with Tiki, uh, because Tiki was severely arthritic. She would shuffle and she wouldn't always pick up her feet as she walked forward, I guess, like this. Um, she would do this and she'd get rocks stuck between her front toes because they're cloven hoof animals, um, or she'd get a stick between her front toes. And she did not have the capacity 
to bend over and pick it out or to go and knock it out any other way. And uh, what we started noticing was that Tiki had a very particular form of front leg lift. And um, it, at first blush, it was a leg lift that indicated muscle spasms because we giraffe are huge and you could see a muscle like this on the shoulder quivering in spasm. So we were able to then figure out how to do a massage or to do stretches. And then we started looking at hoof cleaning um, as part of that. So Tiki is out on exhibit, um, which was about a three acre exhibit. And she's standing and doing a, a leg lift that's very much like if she's standing, this is her body. She's just lifting her leg like this in the front. And I thought that's very atypical for this environment, for this situation. I'm not seeing any stimuli. There's not, I can't see any flies or anything. I wonder what's going on. So Amy walks by her keeper and Tiki starts lifting her leg rhythmically. And then Amy leaves and the leg goes down. And then Tiki goes by again. I mean, Amy goes by again, but Tiki can't see her this time, but can hear her voice. And automatically this leg started raising and lowering it. And in my mind, it was pointed in the direction of Amy, who was on the other side of this wall, uh, 15 foot wall. And I said, Amy, come here for a second. And we went up on this platform and I said, I think Tiki is indicating to you specifically that something's wrong with her foot. Amy, appropriately for that time, was very afraid of the anthropomorph being accused of being anthropomorphic um, or uh, hysterical because women in zookeeping back then used to be considered hysterical if they cared too much for the animals. And, um, she brought in all the other giraffe in the collection. I think there were nine at that time and put them away. And then she walked out onto exhibit and Tiki was lifting her leg and lifting her leg. And Amy lifted her leg very much like a horse they do with horses from behind. There was a big rock between her front two toes. Amy took it out, walked back in. Tiki stopped the behavior. That single event of it being really, really clear cause and effect for Tiki solidified that specific behavior for, hey, something's stuck between my toes. Hey, hey, hey. Um, and then we found that she then started morphing that indicator so that it looked kind of like a leg lift with for something in her toes, but it then ended that tendons were tight in one part of her body or another, that there was maybe some muscle spasms that we didn't see. And it all of these mans started to unfold. And Tiki had a broad uh, background and behaviors that she knew that it made sense that what we thought was creativity uh, and what we were calling her being creative was just a reassembling of all these other things and us paying attention and being receptive to the core idea that all behavior has a purpose. And it's our job to understand that if it's something new, that it's purposeful to the individual that's doing whatever that behavior is and we need to respond appropriately. It's, it's so cool. Um, it, it, I'm stunned sometimes that people kind of forget to ask why questions um, and try to dig a little bit deeper and see those things, but it happens. And I think, you know, you said it's, we get caught up in, well, this is how it's always been. So why should it look any different? Well, it's like, well, it's cause it's a, 
different looking behavior. And I don't know, maybe it should spur creativity in us to examine things further. You know, what is it getting paired with? And that was something I, I wanted to go back a little bit and kind of unpack a little bit more is that concept of trust um, in, in how we see it with animals. And I work with um, adults who have disabilities and predominantly don't have a functional communication system. And so it is a lot of observation. It's understanding their lexicon or their body language and being receptive to that. You know, if they lean towards me, for some of them, that means go away. Um, and then for some of my other individuals, no, it's an initiation. They want to have more contact or they want to be closer, but I can't respond the same way every single time to, you know, it's, or sorry, I can't respond the same way to each individual person because they're an individual. Okay. And, and so really being able to take stock in that, even though, you know, these are species of animals and, you know, yeah, it, 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 we've, we've evolved past that whole thought of like, well, it just should look like this. No, there's a whole lot more. And when you give that person or that animal or that organism an opportunity to develop and grow, like, how cool is that? Like, it's, it's really interesting. And I think the, the culture, the zookeeping culture is in uh, flux because it's going through a lot of stress and change right now. And um, how behavior used to be measured and seen is different than what science and what we're receiving, seeing uh, as, you know, a, um, something that's measurable and verifiable. So I'm going to call it truth for the purposes of this conversation, like choice or like amend or any of those other things you want to put in there um, has a lot of validity. And the example that I give um, for bird people is that people who are used to having uh, birds on hand, meaning the bird is sitting in their hand, there's no glove in between them, but for some people who have to wear gloves, like for raptors, um, they can still feel it. But the, the tension that a bird holds onto your hand or your fingers, again, perched like right here, is a huge amount of information. And when you start slowing down and you what we call listening, but it's literally observations and, and data analysis to what those different grip strengths mean. And then you add that to, is the bird vertical over its feet or is it leaning forward or leaning back? Are you seeing the feathers change? So birds will change their feathers uh, based on a, uh, what we'll call an emotional state. So if they're stressed or frightened, their plumage is held differently than when they're really relaxed. If they're getting ready to fly away because they're very frightened, their plumage is completely different. Their posture is different. So that when you start pulling together that really uh, delicious minutiae of information that you can measure, it, it changes the paradigm. And the perfect example of that um, is uh, videotape um, that I don't have with me right now. I did but of uh, a cockatoo bird that was being trained for injection training. And um, typically birds are only given injections under, under pretty heavy restraint because they're afraid of what are called the air sacs in the lungs being punctured and then killing the bird. So what we were looking at was if we can now measure when the bird is comfortable on the hand and we very clearly recognize uh, a request to interact behavior that they have. And kookaburras have a, a really wonderful vocalization that's pro-social for individuals within their social group, whether they're human or not. Um, and then 
how can we build a training plan around giving this individual two injections in, into the, the muscles at the chest? When you think about how tiny these birds are, the needlework by the veterinarian uh, or the vet technician must be precise and um, must be done in a way that does not traumatize the animal. Because if we start traumatizing animals just for medical purposes, that means that every time uh, a medical procedure needs to be done, whether it's for blood draw or what else, we're putting the animals under high stress. So with this kookaburra, we developed, I didn't, but I was coaching them. We developed um, a communication form of yes, no, and maybe. So if we cued the bird or asked the bird screaming stimulus to come on hand and the bird did, but it was looking away and its body posture was such that it looked like it was ready to leave, we call that a maybe. If we call the bird to hand and it said no, then that's very clearly a no. And we have to go and figure out what's going on. And if we call the bird to hand and it lands and it's very comfortable, then can we start injection training and building injection training? So we start this dialogue, if you will, with the humans to create a dictionary of what the body language uh, very systematically means, very, very via, uh, verifiable over a long period of time, a lot of analysis, and then start building behaviors that way. So it's a, it's a different world. It, it is, but it's also like, I've written some similar lexicons for some of my guys. Like he's got some very clear no's. Um, one is if he's ready for me to leave, he'll just close my computer for me. And I'm like, well, thank you. Um, yeah. it's, it's And he'll make eye contact the whole time with me. And I'm like, I love you for this. You would like me to leave. Baba. Excellent. I'm out, man. Like, but it is, it, it's taken a lot of years of learning and observation and talking with, you know, his caregivers and with him in our little way that we do communicate. And, there, there is something to be said for that trust, because again, we don't want the the organism that we're working with, whether it be, you know, four-legged or human or even an organization and system to feel that, sorry, I just got patted. Um, <laughs> That's beautiful. I as, love it. As mans are happening, apparently I need to pet yeah. the cat. Um, she's been so good behind me. So anyway, but you know, there's, especially in the BCBA world, a lot of discussion about we get called on the carpet for, I've been called pretentious. Um, you know, we come in and we do this, do this, do this, because I'm the professional and like, no, that's traumatizing. That's the same thing as going in and trapping an animal and forcing an injection into it. Like none of this experience is, is building in any way, shape or form. Like it's aversive to everybody. It's coercive. And then what yeah. does that breed? It just breeds more contention as opposed to, hey, let me come in and just sit and observe. And I think that side of, of build, what we call building rapport and pairing yourself, it's not just about giving a treat or petting or things like that. There's there's something more to it. So I don't know if you could kind of maybe explain a little bit of like what that looks like um, in your head and kind of when you're building quote unquote rapport, you know, what, what are your thoughts with that? One of the things that I talk about is uh, to the people I work with is that everything we do communicates our intent or intention to our learners, our animal learners, and nonverbal humans are the same way. Um, so that if if we are being disingenuous, so that our our words are saying one thing, or our discriminatory stimulus language is saying one thing, but we're acting in another, we're creating conflict that they can measure. Because 
these animals living in captivity, and I, that's all animals that live in our homes uh, or our horses or whatever, you know, if it's fenced in or it's in a cage or it's, you know, can't leave, that's what I'm talking about. They become exquisite studiers of our body language and our moods and how we behave. And we turn that around and also look at them with that same permission, if you will, so that when I'm teaching people, I say an animal could have a bad hair day. I don't know that for sure, but I do know that sometimes animals will wake up and not feel well. And we consider that being disrespectful or disobedient or fill in the blank of all these negative labels when the animal genuinely may not be feeling well, or there are better things to do. And we don't have a way to leverage those reinforcers or those environments. So we start talking about how to build that awareness in people. And then, um, then what does that mean when we build that out? So uh, I once did a presentation for zoo people, do alligators smile? Because I was working with an alligator named Bayou, an adult male, uh, very big boy, uh, Bayou. And we had a whole series of things we needed to train. And they don't have the facial muscles that move the way we're used to reading cats and dogs and horses and other animals that express conversations with their facial uh, structure. But you can absolutely read uh, a relaxed eyelid of a, an alligator or a soft uh, eyelid of an alligator or an alligator that's stressed because the way their eyelids, the muscle tension in their body is affecting their eyelids. And one of the things we measured for Bayou specifically is what we called alligator toes. Is Bayou's foot flat and the toes open like this on his foot? And is this foot soft on the ground? That typically means that a lot of the muscles are very, very relaxed. He's not preparing to respond. He's not frightened. He's not having any kind of negative anticipation. He is in it. He's just going to relax. And a deeply relaxed alligator has a different body posture than a non-relaxed alligator. So we start talking about how you measured alligator toes when we would start to go in and train. And we found that Bayou, when we would start training um, something new for him, where the rate of reinforcement may not have been as high as the known behavior, um, that his toes were not as relaxed. And we, we developed this language as a team about alligator's toes or his eyelids, um, or if he started to hold his breath. All those things were really important for whatever kind of behavior we were training, because we did not want to weave into our training plan anything other than a relaxed level. We did not want arousal. We did not want fear. We didn't want him to feel like he needed to run away at any point in time um, or lash out at us. Um, because even though he was behind a barrier, um, steel fencing, he still could have hurt us. He could have hurt himself. So we didn't want that. And the whole dialogue, I, again, we did this with giraffe. You can tell a giraffe that's relaxed based on the, the structure it has when it's walking. And since they're so tall, if you're close, you can actually look at the structure of the feet. So the, if you think of the hoof, this is the bony portion of the hoof that you see. And just above where the hoof goes up into the leg 
is a soft round piece of flesh where the hair is. It's called the coronary band. And that coronary band uh, contracts and expands. And when an animal is walking in a relaxed way, the way it's contracting and expanding is at a different rate. The muscle tone and definition is different. Dog people know that with their dogs, with cats, you know, you can watch them and they may be walking on the tips of their pads, which is a higher arousal state than when they're really relaxed and they're walking flat footed. Um, so we build those dictionaries so that whether it is an alligator, um, an owl, um, any of the cow-like species um, or deer or, you know, big cats, rhinoceros. In, in the acupuncture for the, the rhinoceros um, at the San Francisco Zoo, one of the things we're looking at is what does it sound like when he's walking up? How is he placing his feet? What is his posture? What is his respiration rate? How soft are his lips? How soft are his eyes? That kind of stuff. Those are all the things that dictate our training. The amount of time that it must take you guys to build some of these programs. Like, nope. Okay. Nope. It, it, so that was for my next, like, so explain, like, so what is this? I, I, you, I, if you get called in, um, let's say, to help with something. So what does that typically work? Because you're not just doing, I mean, you're also doing the train the trainer portion too. And, and humans are extremely difficult to train because, well, we're obstinate and we're human. Um, and so Finding the resource loops for humans is the hard part. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, so what actually reinforces this behavior so many things um so what so how do you guys develop this is it um because you know you you did mention already when they're brought into like the collective and everything and so they're going to be part of this new environment so there's that but if you know you're getting called in for a problem behavior as i think a lot of people are more familiar with um you know how long and what steps do you take in that typically what i uh try to do is do a lot of private observations where I'm not interacting with anybody and nobody's talking to me or nobody is dictating or transcribing or acting as a behavior translator to me just so that I can watch. Uh, and I'm watching for smooth muscle movement. Um, that is usually where I want to start regardless of whatever behavior. So I need to be able to see some movement. I also like to see where they're most comfortable and if they have any buddies, um, uh, and, uh, the thing with animals and friendships is really fascinating science. There's a lot of science in multiple species now about these relationships they make and they have, and we have that in lots of different kinds of animals at, at the zoo world where they have these relationships that impact whether or not they're capable of learning or whether they're relaxed enough to hang out, um, and learn something new. So I usually do that. Uh, depending on what's going on for a short period of time. It might be an hour, it might be a couple hours. And then I, in, what I call interview. And there are two forms of interviews. It's a purely a constructional interview. Um, and when I'm with the animal, I want to see how it responds to a reinforcement delivery cycle. How does it feel when I deliver food? Is it nervous about the movement of my hand? Is it clueless? Has it not been conditioned? thoroughly uh, for taking a food? Is it not even comfortable around strangers, which is a big deal because often 
uh, zoo collections are kept where only a limited number of people are ever in uh, the environment with the animal. And if strangers show up, um, things are going to be really nasty, like a medical procedure or a grab up or something like that. So strangers create problems. And then I look at the training uh, environment where they want to train, if it's appropriate for that animal, because often people have been taught in the zoo world as well as in the domestic animal world. And I would assume um, with the BCBAs that are working with nonverbal people is that wherever you start to train is where you're going to start to train. And often that's a desk or a chair, or uh, in the zoo world, it might be a corner of the barn, or it might be an area outside. Um, as in with Bayou, we did all of our training with Bayou, either on his exhibit in a very specific place, or inside his night barn um, at a very specific place. And how comfortable is that an animal in that environment? How comfortable are the people moving around that animal? Does the animal freeze if you move something like a rake? Can you move a piece of equipment? Very much like, you know, who moved my cheese? Uh, because that signals uh, a warning for them. They become nervous about that. And then I do an interview around the people. Again, very constructional, but I don't tell them that I'm interviewing them because that puts people off. Um, and I say, so what are your goals? What kind of training have you experienced? When you've trained an animal, is it someone else's behaviors that you're just maintaining or are you starting a behavior from the beginning because often in some cultures training is training even if you're inheriting something that's completely trained and you're just delivering reinforcement at the terminal behavior um, or however you're told to because they don't understand that instructing building is different from a finished behavior that you're just reinforcing and that's just the culture and then I'll ask, what were the favorite things that you trained? What were the favorite kind of animals that you trained? Tell me about what that was like. And then I ask, what was the thing that was hardest for you? The, the behavior or the animal to work with? And, and let's just talk about what that was like. And often people come into these, uh, professionals come into these environments with a lot of fear of failure or uh, punishment history for not getting what they were supposed to get. And I need to discover that so that I have what I've learned from the animal and I have what I've learned from the person and then I can build those things. And often um, in zoo cultures, a lot of the zoos that I've been in, everybody is seen to be an equal trainer to everybody else without any degrees, intensive study, any tests to see if they have actually absorbed critical uh, con core concepts, do they understand the language or the science? Um, do they even know what a reinforcement preferences are? Because in some zoos, they'll say, see this cookie? That's the only thing the animal works for. And you go to offer the cookie to the animal, and I was like, eh, no, I'll go over here and play with the leaves. So we got to find all these pieces, and then we start building out from there. And often what I find is that people really want their animals to trust them. So people really want a deep reinforcement history, a positive association conditioned in their animals so that when they come into a training environment or come into contact with their animals or just share space in a barn with an animal, the animal is completely comfortable. And building that through reinforcement does two things, strengthens the reinforcement history for the learner so that they're being prepared for that process 
And the other piece that I uh, get people to learn is each animal as an individual has different responses to how food is delivered or how they are scratched. And if we're going to use those as reinforcers, we need to have a complete understanding. And I'll use the example of um, a giraffe at a facility who was severely disabled at birth. Um, her, the head of her femur was crushed uh, at birth. Uh, and because giraffe are such large animals, you can't put them in an x-ray. And back then portable x-rays were not powerful enough to get through that bad amount of tissue to be able to see what's going on. So we didn't know what was going on with Rosie. It was kind of a mystery. We knew that she was chronically lame. Um, and, uh, we need to figure out how we could reinforce her. And I was watching Rosie and I would watch people offer her what was the official reinforcers of leaves and uh, from freshly cut trees, that, which is called browse. And Rosie would barely even pay any attention to it, but she would extend a huge amount of effort and uh, intense focused um, acquisition behaviors for a leaf of a weed that was just outside of her exhibit where she had to stretch and push her neck way over and then push her lips way out to try to get this, you know, these little leaf tips. And I said, there we go. Let's just watch Rosie and see what she likes. And we found out that seasonally, she actually had preferences um, to different thing, kinds of things that would come and go. And she absolutely had a stronger uh, preference for weeds, seasonal weeds, than what the zoo was doing. So we had to create this whole thing. Alongside that, as the keepers were doing all this sampling, they were actually being reinforced, the keepers, for sampling new things, being creative about what the animal might like, doing their own analysis because they had to present it to me afterwards. So I was reinforcing that analysis piece and they'd have, you know, charts and graphs and people who felt so helpless in the beginning to be able to help an animal through that process of just build building the dialogue of preference, opened all these other doors. And what they found was that Rosie the giraffe who lived in severe chronic pain, um, started coming up to them for sessions and that we could then start conditioning the bridges and then all these other things and building these behaviors that we needed to be able to bring Rosie better care. And it all started, if you will, with uh, sour grass, which is oxalis, if you know your weeds. It has the beautiful little yellow flowers in the spring, um, tubular flowers, and it has the clover leaf, uh, grows in bunches. And in the spring, Rosie couldn't get enough sour grass. And that was the doorway that opened for everybody. So that by building simultaneous uh, structured reinforcement processes for both the animal learner and the human learner, and then bringing those together to build behaviors is what I've, I think I've done a very good job with. And by building that success and that curiosity and that um, questioning and analysis so early on in a way that they enjoy, when I would ask a question about a training session or uh, why maybe behavior wasn't developing as I thought it would, we would have these discussions that were all based on analysis and data. It was very, very cool. 
it is that time. It's the first of your two keywords if you are listening for continuing education units. So here's the first of your two keywords. First word is mans, M-A-N-D-S. Mans can occur in a variety of ways, from button presses to paw taps to body positioning. Mans. That's beautiful. That makes my heart so happy. Because, um, uh, yeah, that was one of the big goals that Gold Diamond, you know, is promoting and everything. And that I like to do with the parents and caregivers I work with is I don't want to be like, a, I feel like I'm a crutch sometimes. Like, oh, I need you to come and fix this. No, I want you to become your own contingency analyst. You know, when something happens, whether it's good or bad, being able to tease apart, okay, this is what went really well. We should continue doing this or continue exploring this. This seemed to work. Let's keep playing. Or when, you know, you hit a wall and, oh, it's not working anymore. What do we need to do? It's not, you know, grab Lisa, get her on the phone. It's, okay, let's take a step back. Let's let's go back and look at the environment. Has something shifted? Is something different? Is it a different time of year? Like, you know, yeah, we all wake up grumpy and have different preferences and which goes back to the concept of choice and again a huge component of you know the more that you tell anybody no um and you know i use the very crass example of like putting a rat in electric grid and shocking it but it's you know they'll freak out and that's what happens when you don't offer options i'm i'm gonna find something to do because i can't not not behave um and if i don't have choices then i'm gonna make my own choices and they might not be healthy or you know beneficial for the animal or safe or safe yeah Yeah. i mean you get that's where like feather pulling comes out you get a lot of like chewing on like it's self-injury yeah yeah and and when you're talking about an animal that's over a thousand pounds like the you know the rhinos which are big beasts um wonderful they're like little labradors i love them because they're just really very sweet they follow people around like puppies giant puppies um, but it is, it is amazing that when you craft it in a way so that people understand what the components are and why we're building these components and where these components fit into the next step, it changes the whole direction of training. So what I often do is I take post-it notes out of different colors. So we're going to build a behavior, uh, a plan. And, uh, what I do is we sit down side by side. And the keeper will say, I have, I want this behavior. So I wrote it out on a post-it note. I put it on the table. I said, okay, so what are the parts of that behavior that we need to train for? And we pull out all the parts. So let's talk about injection training as an example. All, what are the things that an animal or any individual needs to be able to learn are a part of getting a shot or a part of giving a shot? And for me, that one's really appropriate because as a child, uh, I was an army brat and they would take us in and I would get all of my shots for movement at once. One day, both arms. And I quickly learned how to run fast. And I also learned that men had things between their legs and if I kicked real hard, the shots would go away. So I learned lots of strategies around that. So in, in talking to people, we started pulling apart what is injection training. And some people have this really large lump because that's all they've ever thought about of poking the needle, activating the plunger, pulling the needle out and leaving. That's an injection training. And when we start pulling it about apart, where should it happen? Is there a time of day? Is the, have you talked to the vets to see that if the fluid in the syringe stings 
or is it cold going in? Or is it, you know, three shots in those giant, uh, for a giraffe, you think about it, three shots in those giant syringes and how big is the needle? And does it need to be intravenously or does it need to be deep muscle or, you know, what all those things. And we build this pyramid of all these things. And then we, after we had that, um, we start discussing, well, if we're going to start, what is the first piece that then links to the next piece, that then links to the next piece, that then links to the next piece. And in building and breaking that apart, it actually allows people to see where a catch pinch point or it's something that's going to take longer to work on needs to be pulled apart and worked on as a separate component. So again, going back to the kookaburra, the components, part of the components, because I don't have the, I don't have the pyramid in front of me, were to fly to hand, to, to sit um, calmly on the hand so the feet are relaxed, for a stranger to come up, uh, and the veterinary vet techs have to actually palpate, palpate the feathers to find the muscle that they want to put the injection in. And so that's another part of that process. And then there's the act of the veterinarian or vet tech taking the syringe out of their pocket and capping it. And some vet techs put them in their mouth and uncap it that way, which is a series of cues for the animal. Some take it the cap out and put it in a pocket, which is a series of cues. And building all these components so that we now can train for this injection training where the animal is not stressed at all and they understand what's going on. And um, it, it's really important so that each of these pieces is built separately as components like coming to hand and sitting calmly on the hand um, are really, really important to the next piece or the whole piece so that if an individual who's been trained well for a string or chain of behaviors or linked components and something starts to erode, you can pull that out and work on that out of, out of the situation, out of that room, out of that environment, without that person, the vet tech, and uh, change the reinforcement structure around it and then put it back in. So, and the confidence and creativity that happens for the human beings once they've done that a couple of times. I, you know, the thing I tell uh, all of the people I mentor, regardless of what industry they're in, is my whole job is to paint my way out of the room. You don't need me. So that if I'm teaching you all of these things well, they live beyond me. So I have a, a story that just happened that I think is a good an analysis of this. Two years ago, I had my knee replaced, uh, my right knee replaced. I was, um, what I've been told, even though I didn't compete as a runner, I was a very high level uh, elite runner. I was running 10 to 12 miles a day uh, at dawn uh, in a cross country type of uh, wild trail running. And uh, my knee went out, I had to have the surgery. It was really gruesome. I did not recover well. And they sent me to a specialist um, who was good at working with high-level elite athletes and rebuilding their movement and strength. So Brian and I started working together and I started teaching him constructional approach, but I didn't call it that and because he didn't need to know that. And I just said, so tell me about what kind of, have you ever seen animal training and 
you know, do you know anything about it? Oh, yes, I have a dog. I clicker trained her. She's amazing. I, you know, and I love this piece about it and blah, blah, blah. In my mind, I said, the light bulb went on. Ah, okay. Now here we go. So Brian and I built a constructional plan for my recovery, which in my case was uh, really excellent. I um, healed faster and beyond what they expected for my age group and the amount of damage that I had in my knee. And I graduated and went on, went on. Um, fast forward to just the other day, one of my uh, girlfriends, who's also an animal training mentee, um, she works with dogs, had to have both of her knees replaced. And was the physical therapy was not working well because she had a traditional physical therapist and she was beginning to suffer because she wasn't getting the strength and the flexation in her knee back. So they assigned her to a new physical therapist, a guy named Brian. She sits down with Brian and Brian immediately starts talking about a plan he has and this is how we're going to do it. And it's in these components and we're going to build these components and put them together. And when my friend Rochelle told me this, I started to cry because I painted my way out of the room with Brian. Brian and I worked together for about six months in my recovery. He absorbed what I taught him without all the fancy language, without all the data analysis that I would have my zookeepers do, he was already there. He started putting into place. And here is my friend now recovering from double knee replacement surgery, who she already knows about constructionalism because I taught her that. And she has a PT who's now taking this and doing cool stuff with it. So that, you know, everything I try to do with every person that I work with is that way because I shouldn't be in the picture. If I've done my job, I shouldn't be in the picture for very long. Yeah. I don't want to be the SD for those things. Like, you know, I, I shouldn't be the cue for you to respond a certain way. It should be what's yeah. occurring in the environment. That is the cue for you to respond that way. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so cool. Um, yeah. So one of the things Okay, let me go back to my notes here. Sorry, somebody knocked my notepad off. Um, Cats. Seriously, Clementine. <laughs> so what's funny, guys, is to give you the kind of the quick backstory, um, I have known these cats for a few years, um, and they've never, they're, I call them aloof floofs, because um, they are very aloof. And I was, after talking with Sean and Masa a couple weeks ago in the constructional affection treatment, I was like, yes, I'm just going to let them approach me. And now she won't stop approaching me. So. There's my my push for yes, you can build. Her name is Clementine. Her brother is Murdoch. Um, they're lovely, and so, um, looking at, I kind of want to go back. So going back into like how the science has changed and everything, and perceptions of people, like you mentioned, you know, being a female in this very male dominated area, and and yeah, you want to give yourself a good laugh, guys, go look at what women could be committed to the asylum for. It's fantastic. I would just live in the asylum at this point, because I think I check <laughs> off like 20 out of 30. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, seeing that kind of evolution of like, okay, now we're gaining, you know, we're, we're gaining more trust, people are trusting our voices more as females. Um, but then we kind of look at this Ooh. shift with how you know, we also we're, we're working with the animals and communicating with them, which leads me into, you know, rights and welfare of animals and animal rights is something that people have often discussed. Oh, hi friend. 
<laughs> um, and so we, how has that, I guess, changed and morphed over time? What does it kind of look like now? Because I know it's one of those, like, you know, there's a, a lot of backlash with SeaWorld and what's going on there. Um, and then I go with zoos and these, you know, kind of like you said, mom and pop places, like I'm in the South and you can drive, you know, 20 minutes to, you know, East Texas and you're going to see a few gator farms and great things like that, that make me cringe a whole lot. Mm -hmm. um, so this concept of animal rights, you know, how, what information do you have about that? Like, how did that develop? And like, what does that actually mean working in like zoos and with these other trainers and everything? The uh, phrase animal rights scares everybody to death um, because uh, all of the negative stereotyping around the kind of people who uh, um, have demanded that animals be freed that can't, they can't, they're just literally, they have no life skills um, because they've been hand fed uh, and very well secured throughout their entire lives. So they don't have to function in the wild. But um, it has such a negative stereotype that we have to readdress that and look at it differently. And what we're looking at uh, in language is more about um, the the five key things for animal welfare, clean water, good places to sleep, reduced stress, high quality food, and an awareness of the keepers um, and the management of the social needs of that species, or not to put them together with other of their kind because they are, are solitary individuals and should never be uh, uh, together, which, often comes into conflict with the Noah's Ark kind of idea that we think that all animals should have a friend or should have buddies um, and it's inappropriate for whatever that kind of animal is because they may only come together for reproductive purposes um, or for killing one another for food or territoriality. So we use different kinds of language and what we're talking about is the welfare of an animal and are we doing everything we can so that the animal has the best quality of health and the best quality of care um, as the science continues to move forward. So the example would be, um, it used to be that animals could be kept um, in a, with, uh, in dog training used to be called nothing in life is free modality, meaning if you want it, you have to do, uh, you have to be a, a good boy or, you know, a good animal of whatever type, a good dog. Um, and then you get access to food. So every piece of food you get is based on you performing correctly. And that used to be the old marine dolphin type of, you know, they knew exactly how much that individual weighed, how many pieces of fish, and they would use all of that diet just when they were performing appropriately um, to meet the human management or entertainment needs. And what we have found is that um, there's, that creates an awful lot of stress for the individuals and they are not based on their um, stress hormones um, and how they're wearing their bodies um, and body scores uh, showing that they're at their best. The environment is not their best. So the way animal rights are looked at uh, in the zoo world are different than the way we would sit if we were sitting around having a, a you know a Coca-Cola and and uh, a bowl of potato chips and we were talking, we'd be saying essentially the same thing. It's just different language. 
so is this is it something that is there like a committee that talks about these things is mm -hmm. there like it, how does it, that develop it it you mm, two different ways um that i've witnessed it uh one is through um what science reveals so that uh what we used to say was uh, use stress and distress now that we can measure that molecularly those are different things it's not an animal over in the corner looking calm it might be sick as hell it's just being stationary so it looks calm and it's in the shade but what are the bio, what are the biomarkers telling you about the quality of life that animal is having so as that science has continued to evolve that has released a lot of information that is measurable medically um, and then the other thing is that the sciences of, that are around animal behavior through observations, large analysis observations, um, has changed how we look at their behavior in the wild. Perfect example using giraffe again, is that they used to think that giraffe were solitary animals that had no true association um, and that they would come together and defend to be, you know, if, if the predator numbers were high, they would come together in larger herds um, or for boys, they would always be following the girls that were putting out hormones that they were sexually receptive uh, and ovulating. Um, and now based on a lot of really cool research where people are on the ground following groups of giraffe uh, and thinking spatially, giraffe-sized, and I'll loop back around to that, they found that giraffe actually have a fission-fusion social network so that it may look that individuals leave, but they have a core group they come back to. And they may go out and do something and come back. And then when they did even really great GPS uh, research where they're actually uh, following uh, an entire communities of giraffe for long periods of time using GPS to mark who was with whom, because getting back to what I said, we look back to, if you and I are standing together, we have our own personal day based on own personal space based on human size, right? So that I'm comfortable if you stand over there, but you get too close to me, that's all human size. If you think about an animal that's 20, 18 to 20 feet tall, their idea of being socially close is a larger thing. So when they started doing the GPS analysis, they found that there were these cultures of giraffe that were mothers and daughters and aunties and grandmothers that were raising calves. And they were doing all of this social relationships where, and they're even nanny giraffes. Um, who are, you know, kind of like the babysitters when the girls need to go out and graze or browse and come back um, or go get a drink of water and come back. And they started measuring not that that wasn't a phenomena or, you know, one crazy woman is thinking this and it's not measurable. It's just that crazy woman with her ovaries out of control about animals. And they started seeing that it was true in Uganda, true in Kenya, true in South Africa. True, you know, in all these countries where the giraffe are deeply distanced and by spaces where they could never even communicate these things, they found out that they had these long-term social bonds. And um, then they started doing uh, really interesting research that revealed 
that if a giraffe dies, that a core group of individuals will stick around. Now, again, that's not like a human being standing at a grave grieving, but from a giraffe size point and distance, they were in the area where this individual died for prolonged periods of time. And it looked very much like what we call grief, but we couldn't use those words in the beginning. And then now they're beginning to say, well, you know, the chimpanzees and vervets and gorillas are beginning to show these kinds of uh, behaviors that we call grief or mourning. And then if those markers are seen in other species, oh, well, maybe that species also has that process. So it was really interesting. And then they started looking at gender-based behavior. And uh, when I was at the Oakland Zoo, we had a couple of boys, boy giraffes, they were neutered. Um, and uh, they were nanny giraffe. And when a baby was born, they would stand over it and give it shade. They would, you know, always be nearby like a big brother. And they were taking on the kinds of things that they knew that the female giraffe did in the wild. But now we were beginning to see that in captivity with non-gender specific roles in these kinds of things. It was fascinating. So, well, did that just that one zookeeper see that? Or... Oh, you mean Phoenix has that happening, the Phoenix Zoo? Oh, wait, the Detroit Zoo too? Oh, wait, the New York Zoo? Wait. Well, then you start getting this body of of, um, research and data that's not been published, but that stands the, the eye of kind of like a peer review process. And you say, there are these other factors that we need to pay attention to. So the social relationships are also now being developed. Animal rights, you know, so we would say, you know, that that, uh, we have a right to free association as human beings. So do animals have friendships? Well, we actually know now that animals have preference and they have individuals they like to hang out with and individuals they might to play with, but they don't like to hang out with. They might, you know, and all these things. And we're seeing that across species uh, species lists. So it's changing a lot. We just don't call it animal rights. We're talking about animal welfare. It's beautiful. And that was one of the things that um, Jesus, when I was taking his classes um, in undergrad and grad school and everything would talk about, part of the constructional approach was you have to have at least three environments, my friend. Um, And the way that I've kind of explained it to people is, you know, it's not just the physical environment, but you know, the, the purpose behind it is what's that critical reinforcement that you're getting. So it's like, we all have a group of friends that like, I hang out with these people when I just want to go and have a good time and laugh and be silly and joke. And then I've got this other group of friends that we talk serious and we get, you know, we hit heavy on topics and everything. And then I have, you know, the fuzzy furry ones that bring me just love and joy and, and being able to, to see that in like other species is so freaking cool. Um, I call it the zip line effect. So we may have a group, let's just say, for the example, I just went out with family to do zip lining in Northern California. And it was my sister um, and her two daughters and one of her uh, daughters, uh, now fiance, and then my best friend. And we were all going zip lining together. And what was fascinating to me as someone who loves to observe behavior is it really quickly a buddy system set up. Not that it was communicated, but it was really clear that 
um, fearful people liked to be with a certain person because of what that chemistry was, or if you will, the, the relationship was, or that sense of ease, or, you know, to have the crazy person go zip lining first and, and then we'll laugh and okay, he made it now we're going to go across too. that kind of buddy system we have seen in, um, animal training where we may want to perfect example, uh, uh, that I have is, uh, a, a troop of baboons that I was working with who had the, uh, what they called the dominant male who was just, um, very mercurial and often would get extremely angry and aggressive and lash out at other animals um, who were not in a specific order. So what I did, and they would line up on this chain link fence and the, the baboons would be on one side and we the training team would be on the other side. As I started watching who was comfortable being next to home. And for this dominant male, he was most comfortable with this one female that was right beside him. So they became training buddies and he was calmer and he was more focused and aware of what was going on. But if she got moved anywhere else and someone else was next to him, he was not able to focus as clearly his rate of behavior changed. He often would um, act out what we call act out. He might become aggressive. Um, and it, it was so interesting. So I had, I saw that I thought, Hmm, is this the same thing with giraffe? Because I always cross verify what I'm experiencing in one species when I have a thought. And what we found is that at the Oakland Zoo, we had a very clear set of individuals who were, uh, would, were very calm and steadfast and uh, would stay in an involved intense training sessions and someone who was less sure of themselves or had a uh, less of a reinforcement history or often uh, were uncomfortable with maybe learning something new. So there was some anxiety around that. If we put the buddy there with them and the buddy that was just there was getting reinforced for being in place, a nice pattern of reinforcement for staying in place and being calm, we could train the nervous Nelly because their buddy was nearby. So we started calling that buddy training. And, and then I started saying, well, does that work that way with that species? Let's go take a look at, you know, another species and then another species. And I have found that in, and in individuals, groups, there's always these kinds of, yeah, I'm much more comfortable with, you know, him next to me than her next to me. So if I'm going to arrange the training sessions for something, I might try to try to manage that. That's so cool. I, I know I've seen a few videos lately about um, strange animals that have paired up. I think there's a common one that comes around every few years of like, it was a lion, a tiger, and a bear yeah. that buddied up. And then yeah. um, several years ago, when they started building the construction um, near the area I lived in, we started seeing coyotes that would pal up with dogs. Yeah. Um, and yeah. We, there was a little pair and we saw them for probably a solid year together. And it was fascinating to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the ones that fascinate me are the coyotes and the badgers, which are often individuals that really struggle because territorially they're trying to, to get to prey in their area. Um, but that actually play and you'll see, you know, like deer who play with dogs and, and things like that, where it shows clearly that we've misunderstood what these buddy relationships were because we didn't have give them permission to have them and then when we 
were defining it, it was so human centric in its definitions that it precluded anybody of that process. And once we've started softening those edges, we now start seeing these long-term relationships or short-term relationships where they come together and they do things like play or they do things like sleep together or they do things like hunt together, um, which is fascinating stuff. And I think it really kind of shows the one of the big pros of of using the constructional approaches. It's it's so much deeper than just here, do this thing. It's It really establishes the trust. You start to see the behaviors build on themselves, but that builds the confidence too. And so, you know, it's just, it's mutually beneficial all the way around. Um, and long-term, I know, I, I feel like I've seen more maintenance with either general behaviors um, or even like trying to build new behaviors into it because I have this you know, tool, and it's not even a tool, but, you know, I have this knowledge of being able to analyze the contingencies and say, okay, you know, we need to shift this way. Let's go over here. Let's play with this and see if this is actually fun and reinforcing for us to learn something new, as opposed to either just feeling stuck or feeling like, you know, you're not able to make progress going forward. And, and yeah, it's, you know, I know my relationship with the humans that I've used the constructional approach with, you know, we, we do have this bond of trust. You know, I've had moments where they've come to me and been like, I just need to vent for a little bit. And that's totally fine. It's like, you know, if the animal is upset for some reason, they can't vent to you, but they may raise a leg or they may nod a certain direction or they may lean a certain direction to kind of signal those things. And yeah, that's for me, that that's the more beautiful thing is you're initiating towards me. You're making the choice to come to me. You trust me to help you. So yeah. Yeah. I, when I look at um, both the animals as well as the humans that I've worked with uh, and taught the constructional approach to, meaning the humans are learning how to do the constructional approach, but the animals are experiencing a constructional approach. What I see is that there's more behavioral creativity. There's more learning something new is... Um, takes less time because they've had the experience of learning lots of new things that makes that less stressful or less, less anticipation or there is a lower uh, averse rate, um, failure rate. I don't like that term, but error rate um, because they've learned the game of learning. And um, for the human side, the guys that I work with who are constructional are problem solvers. They are so good at looking at um, givens that may not be uh, flexible, but finding ways to work through and with and around those things um, for an, an animal's better life, quality of life, as well as coworkers. Um, it's really, really cool. And now I have a, a, a group of people who are training new employees constructionally. So you're getting these brand new people into the field um, who ha have completed a degree process, but have no experience. And how do you build them into being, you know, strong quickly and understanding why these different pieces need to fit together this way? Or if something's broken, it doesn't stop there. How do we then generate all these answers and work towards solution? It's really, really cool. 
the question of why um mm -hmm. i just finished listening to starts with why by simon sinodex and anyway um it's great and then i've moved on to houston we have a narrative and that kind of goes along with this because science yes we've got data points um but those data points have to mean something you know the programs need to mean something and i've definitely found that people are more likely to buy in when they've been considered, um, their choices and consent have been taken, their preferences, their what they consider aversive, like when, when you're a part of developing it, yeah, I'm much more likely to, to invest my time in it. And then like you said, it's that creativity starts to come out and I'm no longer punished for doing something wrong because a lot of us do have this imposter syndrome or perfectionist syndrome. And it's like, heaven forbid I fail. And when in reality, it's like, no, if there's an error, okay, cool. We just take a step back. And again, error in quotes, like we take a step back and we analyze and go, okay, what do, we, what do I need to do differently? What wasn't set up? Did I not, oh man, I didn't, I didn't pull that syringe out fast enough, or I pulled it out too quickly and my arm jerked a certain way. And so it's never, you know, there's always learning opportunities from that. And then, yeah, the, the reinforcement side of yeah, I can build new things either myself or with somebody else. I can teach them to build with somebody else. So yeah, it, it expands across animals, organizations, PT, you know, it's, it's greatness. Yeah. And often when I'm talking um, with um, people, I'll hear the term, well, common sense. And I have to stop people right there and say, common sense is a closed culture idea of acceptable behavior that they're supposed to know automatically without being taught. It doesn't exist. You know, you if if you're expecting someone to behave professionally a certain way within certain expectations, you don't get to say they don't have common sense. You have to say, oh, maybe I didn't teach them well enough. And then I need to break that down for the person, um, for their learning style, for their history, for where their reinforcers are, and also what they already know how to do. And I think in animals particularly, we don't interview animals to say, what do you already know? What are you gonna tell me through your behavior that you already know or you've experienced with other people? Another thing that I tell my zookeepers is that the animals are experiencing your training skill sets for as strong or as weak as they are. And they sh should not experience our lack of understanding or our unfinished skill set development because that's not fair if we're expecting an animal to perform at a certain level we need to have as many of those skills that that uh, are required to teach that well honed to build that behavior it's not there that's they don't have to they should not have to struggle learning as a way of being so yeah. Um, and, and working with adults who find themselves in similar situations, that there's not a lot of choice or there's not a lot of, um, it, I look at it as it's, it's either apathy or it's coerced consent. Like, I'm just going to agree to everything and go along with it because if I, if I in any way, shape or form try to pull back, heaven forbid, like there's usually, there's punishment, there's, you know, scoldings, there's all kinds of things that we we just forget that we've done. Um, and it's unpacking like a lot of your own history too, of, you know, 
what have I experienced that I enjoyed, um, you know, when I was learning? What were the things that encouraged me to keep doing it? And what were the things where, yeah, I could feel my skin, you know, start to bristle a little bit or like my heart started to, you know, beat a different way and like identifying that and then acknowledging the fact that like other organisms do that. <laughs> um, you know, we all behave very similarly and we're all shaped by the environments that we come in contact with. Um, and yeah, so some people, it, it's okay to go and get extra help. It's always okay to, like you said, you know, if, if this little part of the, the skill set, this one component isn't jiving with the rest of it, okay, let's pull it out. Let's isolate it. You know, this one trainer is really having a hard time. What do we need to do to shape up their behavior so that, you know, it changes and, and you know, the, the program can continue to go forward. So, yeah. One of my favorite stories uh, is about Kay Lawrence, who's a, um, a dog trainer in England. Um, who I think is a very important philosopher uh, in the world of animal training. And uh, I, lo I love uh, the, the, some of the insight um, that Kay brings. But one of the things she's often said is that um, the, the error rate is not theirs. The error rate is ours, meaning it's the construction in what we're doing. Um, and have we really spent enough time thinking about uh, how I'm delivering the reinforcer. Does it match the behavior that I'm trying to build? A common one is that, that we were just talking about the other day at the zoo was training an animal to walk uh, on leash for walk arounds in the zoo. Two different schools of thought. There's a camp that says you walk, then you mark or bridge or use your discriminative stimulus, and then you stop and deliver food and then you start the loop up again. And the other one says, you deliver the reinforcer while you're walking because you're reinforcing the walking, not the stopping. And, and what, what the truth is, is that what is going on with the behavior of the individual, because some animals may need to stop and chew. They may not be able to walk and talk, so to speak, walk and chew at the same time. And then there are lots of animals that are really well designed to walk and chew. A lot of the equids and goats and cattle walk and chew all the time. Giraffe walk and chew all the time. So your rate of reinforcement is structured around those kinds of loops of behavior. But without taking the time to figure out what that individual is, why are we having an argument about which camp we're supposed to be in? Because we haven't done our homework yet. I mean, you have to ask, what does this animal want to, like you said, can it, can it walk and chew? Can it, or does it need to take breaks? Especially when... You know, I, I learned recently um, that horses have very odd vision um, and where they can see and everything. And so that's why a lot of times they get spooked, because even though it, it may be the same hose that has been there every single time, the way that they turn their body and the way that their eye, it, it you know, passes past looks like a snake and it's jarring and so yeah taking that step back and it's not it's not their fault you know it's not the hose's fault it's not the horse's fault it's just okay what happened here okay mm -hmm. so in the future we need to make sure that he's positioned this way or that, that this is an out of the environment if it can be yeah. and so it's i don't know from it problems that arise you know are, are great for discussion because yeah, yeah and every creature is going to be different that's right and that's the, that's the great thing about constructional design from my perspective is that it's always studying the one um, and trying to figure out if there is a problem, is it something that I didn't think about and how can I now address that? 
um, just for the audience, giraffe have the same uh, field division issues that horses do based on where their skulls are and their head. But if you th also think about it, being that tall from the chest down, they're not seeing stuff right in front of them. And often you'll see, unless people train giraffe that cues or discrimination is gonna happen down below their head, they're not designed to look down like that. Their head and neck level is so that they're looking out. And here we are down below them, throwing our cues and asking for them to do behaviors and all of their attention is elsewhere because of that sort of design. So we really have to think about the, the totality of an individual and building that. Same with trainers. Are we right-handed or left-handed? Have we practiced with the tools in the other hands Have with outside of a training session? Have we played with the setup? Uh, you know, if we're working with a non-verbal human being, have we played with the setup so that we're trying to design it for their, whatever their uh, needs are for our skill sets? And without doing that, if we just sit down to the table, like playing cards and I'm gonna play this way because I'm right-handed, um, does it mean that the person I'm playing with is going to be able to play equally with me because I may not have the environment set up for them to be fully participatory? So it's really powerful stuff. And it's, it's I don't know, I enjoy investigating is the detective side of things, is figuring out, you know, where did this come from kind of deal. So yeah, yeah, yeah the construction design is beautiful. Um, and I realize like I haven't been putting names in, so I will probably take a few minutes to do that either in the chat or I will send a follow-up email. Um, but as always, whenever we put stuff up on the website, I have a list of resources and citations on there as well. So you guys can go and check awesome things out. Um, and so in the interest of time, because I mean, as Nikki said, and I'm, I will echo, it's like, yeah, I could sit here and talk to you all day and just keep learning and listening. Um, but it is a Wednesday and people apparently have like real jobs. So <laughs> lame for you guys. So, but I wanted to do, I wanted to have a little bit of like Q&A if anybody had questions, um, feel free to put them in the chat or you can come off your mic. Um, I mean, I have just kind of, you know, kind of fun questions like, so fruit bats have facial expressions, but do they recognize human facial expressions? I think so. I, I actually worked extensively with um, uh, another uh, fruit bat. And for me, he could see when my body language was such that I was ready to train. That, that, and again, he's hanging down. So his, his, I mean, his face is right here in front of mine. We are, that's how we're interacting. Um, and those are really important cues for him. So if I'm not paying attention, he knows that. If he's not paying attention, I know that because we're face-to-face -face in that example. That's adorable. Oh, question. Are fruit bats just as cute in person as they are oh, in photos? God, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, I don't want to offend anybody, um, uh, but there are things that fruit bats do a little bit different. Um, they uh, do something that's called a pee bath. So they're hanging upside down and their genitalia is forward facing and they'll pee into their uh, wings, which are hands. So the wings are down here. And then they'll do this uh, pee bath. And I found that Rhino was the name of this fruit bat I worked with for, I think, three or four years. Rhino would see me and take a pee bath. 
And it was this, all this, it was almost like um, someone getting ready for a date because it was this long preparatory, you know, bathing process just before I would show up. And it, and it was delightful for me. And I, I know that I started the training sessions with a lighter heart and happy to be there when I could see that Rhino was getting ready for me. And, and Rhino would also see me coming into the exhibit and come running, crawling across uh, the cage because he, uh, even though he could have flown, he chose not to, it was more efficient for him to crawl across the top of the cage. But yeah, he had certain facial expressions that were very endearing to me because the, I was reinforced by them. Right, they are just as cute as they are in pictures. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they super look adorable. Um, okay, so what about, I mean, I know you've worked with giraffe a lot, um, but what is another one of like your favorite animals to work with or train that you've experienced? To be completely honest, every animal I start training, I absolutely fall in love with because my rate of reinforcement goes way, way up there. Um, let's see. Um, I'd, I'd have to say that one of the animals that uh, is very near and dear to my heart is named Strider at the San Francisco Zoo. And he's a, uh, a he's a steer. He's a combination of domestic animal and a zebu, which is an African uh, or actually international type of uh, cattle. And uh, Strider would show such positive association for his training group that he would move and it's called pronking, a lot of hoof stock, cloven hoof, they bounce like this. So imagine this really big steer seeing his person making all of these mooing sounds, happy little mooing sounds and pronking towards the group. And that's very reinforcing for me. So I really, really, really enjoy that. Or um, when the team was working with the kookaburra and the kookaburra could hear us coming but couldn't see us, and he would start all of his pro-social calls that um, were happy and excited about his people coming. Again, it's a side effect of the reinforcement structure, but who's being reinforced? Lisa is as a consultant. You know, those things are important for us. Oh, for sure. Watching animals um, pronking for bunnies, it's binking, dogs and cats have zoomies. Like yeah. that truly is like when you see an animal and they can just have this like unfettered joy yeah. um, in whatever environment they're in, like it is, that's a beautiful thing. Or um, the relaxation, you were talking about the alligator and alligator to bunny, um, but I had rabbits growing up. And yeah, I mean, they're very skittish animals. They're very high anxiety because like everything eats them. Um, but having one that just kind of flops on you, or if it's just sitting there chilling content and does its whole little like dead bunny roll, like it's adorable. And yeah. it's also very reinforcing, like oh, you trust me, yeah. like you feel safe in this environment. And, and I strongly encourage people like not just to look for that with, you know, animals, but also look at that with humans. Like who are Absolutely. the humans that approach you? Yeah. Who are the people that, you know, you can tell that they get relaxed in your environment and it may, and you know, it may not always be as mutually reinforcing that does happen. Um, Cause it can, life is stressful and humans and organisms are stressful, but you know, finding that little bit of joy um, 
is so important, especially like thinking about concepts of burnout and stressors just in general. And yeah, being able to be like, huh, they're excited to see me. That's nifty. We can, we can move on. Here's another really cool example of that. Um, male gorilla, the San Francisco zoo's name is Oscar. I call him Otis because I have a brain block. So if I'm saying two different names, understand it's one individual. Um, he will sit there often with his back to people and watch from his the side eye. And then because of our culture, what we think of side eye, we see, think of side eye as being disapproving, hostile, maybe a pre-aggression type behavior. But um, with this one keeper that uh, uh, Oscar has a really good relationship with, often Oscar will turn his back to this guy, but then turn his head so he's got him just in the field of vision. And, and, as long, and that is their relationship. And, and uh, Oscar really likes this guy. So that if, this guy, if the keeper leaves that field of vision, Oscar will look predict where he's going to show up next, go run over there, sit with his back to that area, but have side eye. And, and we don't always attribute to our learners, regardless of what species we're talking about or disabilities or, or whatever impairments and say, how are they, how are they showing in the environment there that they're actually um, have a positive relationship or positive association uh, with, this individual or that individual. And it looks differently from per person or individual to individual. Excuse me, I have dogs that are breathing well, so I'm giving them person. <laughs> but it is like, uh, Nikki said in the chat, it's, you know, I've been chosen when the cat comes and lays on you. And it is, it's that wonderful moment of like, yeah, you do yeah. like me. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, and it may look different, you know, for everyone, you know. My dog was very much a parallel or, you know, she didn't want to be cooperative play, but she would parallel, like, I'll come sit next to you. I don't want to interact, but yeah. I'll chill next yeah. to you. Okay, and cool, I think, man. And that's one of the great gifts of um, the constructional approach is that it asks us, uh, in, in my mind, the way that I have been working it and was first introduced to it, is that I'm a fact finder. I must get my analysis done. I must double check to make sure is this just Lisa having, you know, a moment of, you know, I get to be with this animal, um, which was like the first time I was with a jaguar. I was like, and she was saying, I don't like you and you can leave. And then her person walked in and I could see the difference. And I started studying that change between Lisa, please leave to oh, there's my person and, and how that whole um, interplayed. And because you know, my job is to do analysis and my job is to be an impartial observer um, and very careful about how I'm designing things is to notice those things. And is it distance? Is it time of day? Is it, you know, um, the shampoo? Animals are very, in zoos, animals are very keen on people's sh shampoos. And, and keepers will share that using Oscar as an example, but I don't know about Oscar. Maybe Oscar likes you know, um, caress botanical shampoo because of the fragrance, but does not like, let's say, um, oh, I can't think of, you know, um, a more masculine, just as an example. Old Spice. Yeah. Oh, that's the one I was trying to think of, you know, and, and, and that needs to be in my data. How, how do they respond to the environment? And that's my job just to figure that out. It's, 
yeah I, I studying behavior is really cool guys in case you can't tell um there's so many little things that we can look at like yeah, the you changed your shampoo or your body wash or, you know, these different, you know, as preferences um, and any given time of day, like trying to, you know, we don't feel the same way your entire, and if you do, like, that's awesome. Good on you. But like, I think most people fluctuate in how their mood is throughout the day. Little things happen. You become more sensitive to other things. And so, yeah, just taking all that into consideration on a continuous basis like it, yeah. it's definitely it's ne it's never a one and done like right. and it really shouldn't be because i mean you're you behave until you're dead yeah. so you know yeah. at least make it enjoyable and and uh to take this just a little bit further uh that point is that uh the language of behavior analysis we often get stuck uh in a very rigid set of this is the only answer these are the only examples this is who you cite this is the research and they're very rigid things. But if we're not talking to other people in that field with that exact same breadth of knowledge, we can be isolating people. And as someone who, again, applied applied behavior analysis, what I really, really like is to try to understand when someone is using a word that they think they're using correctly, it's not my job to correct them because that is actually putting a, a wall between us, but to investigate what that means. When, when I say reinforcer or reinforcing or reinforcement, what do those words mean to you? Can you give me examples? Can If you can't give me an example, can you demonstrate it for me? And, or what have, what have you been told? What have you experienced? Because all those pieces are so important to us in the constructional piece, because we're really looking to build behavior through components and increments, as opposed to a, a lump of actions or understandings or knowledge or skill sets. So that was like the most beautiful summary that I was like, we should summarize. Bam, there it is, guys. There's your summary. It, yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to try to top that. Um, so to kind of wrap up, uh, I know a lot of people, I'm sure, will have questions about, you know, how do I get involved with this? So, kind of, what are your go-to recommendations for, you know, I am looking at grad school or I'm looking at undergrad. I'm interested in animals. I need a career change. What are some like, hey, go check this out ideas that you have for people? There, mm, mm, there is not one clearinghouse um, yet. And I keep on waiting uh, for that, for all of those things to be knitted together in a way that uh, doesn't isolate or become hierarchical. Um, and most of the systems are very hierarchical and, and uh, segregate or separate people. Um, what I would suggest is that uh, you pick a species that you have access to and just start to understand how they're reinforced or acting in the environment. I have um, a lot of wild birds. California, I'm in Northern California and we're in a very serious drought. Uh, and I have bird feeders and I have um, watering stations all over. And because of this, uh, birds of prey have started hunting on uh, the songbirds. It's a natural process. It's just there are lots of birds now in my yard, which is easy pickings for the bird of prey. But having these birds of prey come in, give me an opportunity to study how they function in their environment. What is reinforcing to them? What, how often, how are they wired for um, trial and error, 
which is phenomenal for me because uh, a lot of predators will try eight times and, you know, on the, or try 10 times and eight out of 10 are failures, but they're reinforced by and learn from those two successful feedings. But it, it, the science is never isolated to a classroom and it's always available for us to be understanding um, about what's going on in front of us. If we just still, still our mind and, and observe, um, the, there are a lot of good books. I really think um, that the constructional approach book um, by Joe Lang at all that's out is a great book um, that I would start and help me out. Yes. We're in, in the index at the back. What is the chapter that's, that talks about reinforce at the very end? There's a part of it. I can't, I don't have the book in front of me. So yeah, I, he's got, let's see, we've got a couple of different appendices. Appendices. appendices that talks about um, some of the. We have the behavioral contingency analysis. The D appendix. I think it's appendices D. D. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Perfect. That's it. That's it. Um, and I would start having people just having a discussion about that because there is so much good stuff in that index piece that opens and unlocks lots of really good curious questions and then ways to go out and take a look at that because behavior behaving is happening all around us all the time. Um, and whether it's peopley behavior or animal behavior, um, it's a, a great way to start looking at the, the constructional process that way. So I hope that helped. Alrighty, the second of your two keywords is space, S-P-A-C-E. Consider how the organism exists in their space. Yeah, I mean, as, as Jesus would say, behavior is a stream, my friend. You know, there's con it's constantly flowing. There's always things that are making it go up and down and move and shift. And a lot of times we come in and we do. We just, as he would say, put a frame around it. But I'm still not sure how you put frames around streams, but it's fine. But like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a great analogy sometimes, <laughs> but it works. Um, but yeah, we would look at it as just this ABC and and no, there's, that's why the nonlinear side of things happens because you have learning histories, you have species histories, you have, you know, genetic components, and then you have the environmental side of things. And yeah, being able to tease apart those little bits makes for such improved programming um, because you are taking into account all of these other potential variables without being, what's the word that I want? so meticulous that you burn yourself out like it's just a natural part of the data collection it's just a natural part of the investigation is like cool so what was going on earlier that day do we see this at different times it's not oh man i've got to go through this checklist it's just it just naturally kind of flows and and that's why i suggest watching wildlife um because we are not trying to manipulate variables we are just observing and uh, there's no stress in that other than having a sharp shin hawk come in and start feeding off of your little babies. But, you know, that unfortunately, that's the truth of life. Um, but it's a fascinating way. Um, another thing to do when you go to a zoo is stand for a long time in front of a, an exhibit and just watch the behavior of what's going on and how the animal is interacting uh, in that environment. Um, typically, Guests at a zoo, and you can time yourself, stay in front of anyone exhibit less than three seconds. 
it's for that moment of, of entertainment and then they're satisfied and they move on. And there's still so much more behavior that was going on with an individual. Example would be um, the other day we were watching a, a rhinoceros, a greater one horn rhinoceros. Um, and he was laying on his side in the back in the shade. He was taking what we call a nap, but he had his head. Uh, you've seen the big plastic drums that chemicals are shipped in, you know, but they're plastic. And what Kahati, the rhino had done was had somewhat collapsed the uh, drum, the plastic drum into a pillow shape and this had his head on the pillow. Now, what does that tell you? How was he responding to the environment? Was he asleep or was he still listening? Was he comfortable? Did he stay in that position for very long? Look at the choices that he made. Where is he? Is he in deep, soft sand or is he on hard substrate? Is he in shade or not? And all of those things are really fascinating ways to start softening and practicing observations. And then when you start seeing trends that look where you might be able to predict them, then how would you be able to use that if you were going to build a behavior? So if you look at Kahati, again, um, his, parts of his exhibit, outer exhibit, have green paint on them um, as the back back uh, drop. And if you look at Kahati, you'll see that he has uh, green paint worn off on his skin. Sometimes he looks a little green. What does that tell you? He likes to rub. He likes to rub very specific places. Oh, light bulb going on. Is that a place that as if I'm going to be working with that individual that I can access as a form of reinforcer? Is it possible? How do I set it up so I can test my theory? How can I either prove or disprove? Let's take a look at that. And then are there areas where there is no paint on him, which tells you he doesn't either can't reach those areas or maybe he doesn't like to have the, that area rubbed. Time to ask questions. And I can't go to Kahati and say, hi, buddy, what do you think about this? But I can, if I'm a keeper working with him in a safe place, try rubbing or scratching hard those different areas to see, does he lean in? Does he lean away? Does he stand still? Are his ears flicking? All those pieces are great observational skills. And we could do that with the cats, that, the cat that's behind you right now, um, or the dogs that are at my feet, uh, or people. There are lots of ways just to do observations in a very safe and comfortable way without feeling a stress about then applying it some way. I mean, that's... That's the big takeaway that I love with the construction design is it alleviates a lot of stress, exactly. which makes learning fun, which makes me engaging and reinforcing and an agent of trust. And we, you know, it's, it's, it's not just giving, you know, like you said, the bridge, uh, the whistle or the click or something like that, or the food. It's not just that there's so much more that goes into it. Um, and being able to tease apart those layers really, I mean, is beneficial. Yeah. Um, and, and program building and skill building, um, you know, regardless if it's a one-to-one -one or you're looking at systems and trying to train trainers who are going to train and so on. Yeah. So, oh man. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, this was so cool. Um, and I know we've been talking for a while and I love it so much. And I, yes, am, am going to plan a trip out to San Fran so that we can hang out and I can come and I can get, I may never leave. Like guys, you may just find, like, I will just become part of the zoo. Like stick me in the flamingo enclosure and just let me live there and I will die happy. It'll be great. Well, I can flam- flamingos stink. So we'll try to find you something to I love them though. I I have an obsession. Um, I have a tattoo. I take a tiny flamingo with me everywhere. Oh, that's right. I literally, yeah, guys. So if you ever follow any of our stuff, um, I have literally tons of these little flamingo dudes um, that a a friend of mine got for me, and so I've decided that they're my little my little buddies. Yeah. But yes, I will one day tell people my flamingo story and why I love them because they are they're they're so gross. I but they're I, I really hope that you get out so that we can get your hands dirty and that you can, we can actually give you an opportunity to do some measurements or to get a hug and a kiss from an animal like a giraffe because they're trained for that. I, it was beautiful. Um, I got to watch a couple of videos this morning about that and it was, yeah, it just seemed fair again. And it's just this nice, beautiful, consensual moment um, between human and giraffe and mm-hmm. everyone's happy and yep. yeah, your happy chemicals go off in your brain and, a good day yeah seems like nikki and andrew are in the same boat. we're all just going to come to san fran now um (laughs) and just live in the zoo well actually let let me just put this uh uh, as a placeholder there's nothing set yet so again in capital letters nothing set yet but we're talking about trying to do a conference a construction conference for humans and animals together at the zoo yay yeah but yeah nothing set yet we're just like can we do this what do we need to do to do this we already know the audience really wants this so oh yeah i mean it's it's just been a blast to see the discussion about nonlinear and constructional approach in the last few years really develop because you know 10 15 years ago it did not look like that at abba like yeah. it was one talk and it was us grad students from unt talking about it yeah. and now i mean we're seeing it, it it's worldwide yeah. um it's really cool there's a lot of cool trainers out there who are just beautiful humans as well um and it's it's great so okay my dear friends i will i promise i will let you guys go this it's like a southern goodbye um we're gonna say goodbye like 16 times at this point um but one one last thing and then i swear um if people wanted to contact you where can they find you on the interwebs get in contact um Um, you i'll get i'll have you give them my email address um i need context because i get lots and lots of emails so please uh you know state that you are here in this group uh, so that we can start a conversation from a, a good level. But yeah, that's the best way. Or Buffet. Awesome. Yeah, there we go. Check out the book face, yep. um, all those great things. And like, I strongly encourage people to reach out to myself or our guests on the pod because it is about having a verbal community. Um, this is how we grow. Um, yes. This is how we learn new things. And the science develops and progresses in a way that's actually going to be mutually beneficial. So. Okay. Yes. So again, thank you all. Lisa, you are a gem. um, And this was awesome. Happy, happy Wednesday, everyone. Go kick ass the rest of the week. I love you all. Be kind to each other. Be kind to the animals. Bye, everybody. uh, we'll, We'll see you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website, atypicalba.com, for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. 
To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes. Well, hello again there, beautiful people. Thanks for hanging out just a little bit longer. As promised, here's a preview clip from our next episode. Enjoy, and we'll see you in the fringes. In my case, the owner, in your case, the families are so essential to the process. And you have to make them feel like you totally support them, not just feel like it, you have to support them.